Welcome to Season 8 of the Creative Genius Podcast from Pearl Collective. We're kicking off 2024 with an eye-opening conversation between Pearl Collective co-founder Gail Doby and Matt Higgins, co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures, an investment and innovation incubation firm, as well as the author of the book, Burn the Boats. In this episode, Matt Higgins will challenge you to toss your plan B overboard so that you focus on your main goal. And if that idea scares you, listen on to hear why it's critical, as well as Matt's fascinating story. Matt, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you here. And as I mentioned to you in our exchange back and forth on LinkedIn, your book resonated with me on so many different levels. Of course, being a female entrepreneur and understanding the the difficulties that single moms have in running a business and having to deal with some of the, the crises that they have to deal with along the way. But I wanted to start today, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your origin story, because your story about your mom really hit me in such a deep way. No, I, first of all, I remember our DM exchange. Uh, and I always say that I didn't just write a book, I engineered an outcome, and it's a multi-layered outcome, uh, mostly to hold up a mirror to human potential. But you know, a few layers beneath that is to really celebrate all the strong women in my life and all the female influences that I've had from my mom to my wife, but without being preachy. Nobody wants to be lectured. You know, women are great. Women CEOs are amazing. So my engineering was, let me show you what that looks like, and I and I tried to weave that in to the book. So it's very important to reach a female audience and to commiserate about all these incredible, strong female uh, influences that I've had in my life. So when it resonates, I feel successful because it, it was it was conscious. Uh, you know, the whole book is dedicated to my amazing wife, uh, Sarah. So to rewind, uh, you know, my, my origin story uh, goes back to Queens, New York. I grew up in, in uh, abject poverty, and uh, those words always lose their meaning. So what does that mean? I grew up eating government cheese, literally said brought to my desk, actually, the box, not the cheese. It uh, says brought to you by the USDA. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, and I just grew up selling flowers on street corners when I was 10, like literally, truly, the one knocking on your window to sell you flowers, just whatever it would take. And I had my mom got divorced from my dad when uh, I was nine years old and, uh, you know, very contentious and sad and totally dysfunctional. And she was um, very heavy, had a thyroid uh, uh, thyroid condition and just, you know, a product of abuse, the extent to which I did not realize until much later in life. So my earliest little memories, and I don't have many, anybody who's been through a lot of early trauma can relate to this. I probably have five memories as a kid, but one of the earliest ones are going to college with her on Saturdays when she was picking herself up uh, from nothing and trying to use her brain. She got a GED, didn't even have a high school diploma, and then was taking classes at Queens College. So I was sitting in the back of the room reading Beverly Cleary books and thinking like, what's my mom doing on this Saturday in this hot room in Powdermaker Hall in Queens College? So that was my context. But there was also an element of total desperation. You know, you're a kid, you know, when when your parents struggling, my mother was very depressed getting increasingly uh, uh, just trials of Job, every kind of illness, getting heavier. And, you know, you fantasize as a little kid, uh, well, maybe the, a man will come and step in and marry my mom. You know, I went through that phase. And then maybe the system will give a shit uh, and you learn that it doesn't. So you go through these sort of stages of, of grief and acceptance and depression and, and fantasy. And then the last one, if you're lucky, is defiance. So I became very defiant uh, when I was probably around seventh grade 
early memories are of like, I got to do something about this and made a couple of conscious decisions. One that I'm not going to define my narrative as being a victim. And my mother had been kind of depleted by life and felt very victimized. And it just never resonated with me when we'd have these conversations. And, and then too, I got to get out. I, I got to do something because the cavalry is not coming and, and I resent my life and, and I want to be able to do my, my, my duty, help take care of my mom. I had that hero complex as a kid, but I also wanted to have my own life. And I was very much aware of the dysfunction. And so I came up with a hack inspired by my mom, which was if you could get take the GED and do well enough on the GED, you could technically convert that to uh, a, 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 a grade point average and go to any college in America. And I remember how excited I'm getting to my burn the boats moment. I was like, this makes total sense. I'm working overnight at a deli carrying a butterfly knife so I don't get jumped. I'm not getting any sleep. I hate my life. We live in a we live in a roach motel. But if I can go ahead and I can get a go and get a college at 16, I can get a job making eight dollars an hour instead of three seventy five at McDonald's or five bucks at the deli, right? Like that was the whole hack. And yet when I told my guidance counselor, uh, like oh, I got this great idea, everyone's response was, you know, varying from you're going to be a loser to pity. Like this makes no sense. And it's an important point for anyone listening. When you're going through something very difficult and your whole MO is to conceal it, which most of us do when we're struggling, I was concealing the fact that I was dirt poor. I had nice jeans because with those flower money that I sold, I had I had the perfect little smile. I looked like a middle-class little boy, you know, and so no one had visibility. So the advice I got from conventional wisdom was distorted by me. So keep that in mind, anyone struggling, the advice you're going to get back is distorted by your lack of candor. And then mm -hmm. two... Everyone I consulted had a vested interest in perpetuating solutions for the base case. What is the base case? Uh, at least a functional household, if not two parents, at least food on the table, enough to work with, right? So your guidance counselors, your teachers, their advice was about the base case. So when you're dealing with a happy little, you know, white kid in America, you're like, wow, you shouldn't drop out. You should stay the course, young man. And so the advice was about the edge, the base case. And yet I was an edge case. And I realized that it made sense to me. So my burn the boats moment came and I'll stop talking in a second. When I finally decided, like the only way that I'm going to go through with this radical plan is if I self-sabotage, if I give myself no ability to retreat. I don't know where this insight came from, but I was like, if I have even a little bit of a way back to, to restore my grades, then I may take it because of the pressure, I'm unrelenting pressure to get me to change my mind. So I failed every single class. I went from a kid who is, you know, seen as gifted to the land of misfit toys with all the kids wearing beepers and dealing drugs and all that. And my head down on the, on the desk for two years straight until the system wrote me off. And that was my burn the boats moment when I decided to self-sabotage my education. So I would go through with my conviction. I dropped out of high school at 16 years old, sat on the steps of Cardoza High School thinking they're probably all right. I'm going to be a loser for the rest of my life. But I went through with it. By the time I was, you know, my, my graduated class was at their prom. I had already finished a year of college, was on the debate team. And I went from 16-year-old high school dropout to by the time I was 26 to press secretary to the mayor of New York, 375 an hour to $105,000 a year with that one move. That is amazing. So Thank you. the question that I have for you about this is you mentioned McDonald's. And you talked about being the best gum scraper at McDonald's. And how is that indicative of your future success? I, I love that story, by the way. 
Yeah, true story. I was a little, I was, I was, it's interesting. I was 13 years old at the time. And I remember the first time I was given this assignment to scrape the gum under the tables at McDonald's. So if anyone out there listening members of those party rooms, I guess they still exist. These little mushroom Mario like characters and all that gum that was underneath. And you can imagine how it ruins your party if the mom gets gum on her on her dress, right? So my job was like, get on your hands and knees and clean up every single piece of gum. And at first I was humiliated because a lot of my kids would go through, all the kids at high school would go through the glass and they'd see me on, the, on my knees and make fun of me, wear my little McDonald's uniform, right? But then I kind of realized like, you know what? Nobody else wants to do this job. I was like, but if I become the best damn gun scraper there ever was, it's gonna create, ever was, it's gonna create power. You know, like you could feel the energy, right? Like if if I kill this, it creates just a small bit of leverage in my powerless world to go ahead and impose something. And that's exactly what happened. No one cared about gum scraping and no one cared except the guy who owned the place. That guy said when the labor laws changed in the United States and you couldn't be paying a little 13-year-old to scrape gum for 40 hours a week, he paid me off the books, you know, and kept me on. And then I eventually became manager of the party room. And that taught me honestly, one of the five most important lessons of my entire career. And that's why I hate this idea of quiet quitting so much. The path to success is one, uh, opportunity is a leading indicator. Compensation is a lagging indicator. You take the opportunity in the form of incremental work, right? Number two, make yourself indispensable, whatever menial tasks you're given. And by becoming indispensable, that's going to create leverage. Three, how do you use your leverage? Most people squander their leverage by becoming whiny and annoying. Like, where's my money? Where's my money? No, no. Use your leverage to get a title. Use your leverage to get something that you could leverage elsewhere if you don't get what you want here. And I realized that early on, my first promotion was I wanted to be, you know, maintenance manager of the party room. You know, like I didn't want more money. I wanted to be designated as a young kid in charge. And I followed that formula my entire career. I would always leverage my indispensable nature to get a title that I, if I then didn't get the compensation I wanted, I could quit. I left the mayor's office two times I quit and Rudy Giuliani version 1.0 before the current incarnation, but back in the day when he was a celebrated mayor, he didn't take kindly to people quitting on him because I didn't get what I wanted. And yet, and I wanted to continue advance. And he brought me back the third time at 26 years old as press secretary. So I learned it all scraping gum at McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) That is totally amazing. So with that, I, I think one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading the book and I went back and I reread it and I, I take notes on books that I think the most of, which I took notes on yours. Thank you. And um, one of the things that I just was struck with was your determination, your your will and your unusual thinking, the way that you approach things. And I was wondering what you thought about the fact that having the things that you went through, the the humble beginnings and all the things you went through, how much do you think that really gave you the extra edge over other people who had privilege and access to things that you didn't have access to? Yeah, back to, first of all, thank you about the taking notes, like nothing more flattering as an author to hear that it has that kind of impact. I think that the upside down way in which I see the universe was born of those circumstances. And I guess the central upside down way I see the universe is we are conditioned to believe that solutions identified or hashed out give us the confidence to undertake the problem because we've identified, okay, I have a solution. I know how I'm going to work it out. Or I think I realized pretty early on that we have it all, we have it backwards, that problems beget solutions. And if you trust your capacity to just figure it out, 
your infinite capacity, and that's where the whole burn the boats philosophy comes from, that you will then undertake the problem without a solution identified. And you therefore lower the bar to your own achievement. Whereas if you require yourself to identify the solution first, you will never undertake the problem because it's so hard to get to a point that you feel that confident. So it's a long way of saying, there's no way in hell I would have stumbled upon that if I, if I didn't go through a version of hell, right? Even though I don't believe you need to go through that version of hell to, to un hear what I'm saying, to adopt it as a mindset. I don't wish that on anyone. But I don't think the version of Matt Higgins uh, that doesn't go through that, that has a typical two-family household, doesn't have a mother who's so desperate, doesn't have all that, is not sitting here right now, is not meeting with Pope Francis to, to private audiences at 45 or running to, to NFL teams. I don't say that in a self-aggrandizing way. I say it in a little bit disassociated. There's no way I get here by 46. There's no way I drop out. There's no way I get to take advantage of compounding starting at 16, right? All this professional success happened earlier because of my you know, circumstance. On the flip side, I get at, Dave Chang asked me, I love Dave Chang, my partner, Momofuku, but he, you know, he's got this bias towards like, you know, hard scrabble people who are self-made. And he goes, you know, do you see a resume from a kid at Harvard? And you're like, tell with that, you know, I'm looking for the kid from Queens College. And I said, absolutely not, for two reasons. One, going through what I went through creates a lot of dysfunction and a lot of damage that takes years and years to unravel. And it shows up professionally and personally. They would be mm -hmm. a lie to not say that. Number two, Every single human listening to this, if they grew up in some typical scenario, dealt with their own version of pain and suffering that has shaped their life that they've tried to overcome, some version of baggage. I think it's just as painful and hard if you have a dad that never told you I love you as it is to deal and eat government cheese. You know what I mean? Like, so it's all relative. And so I guess long story short, I'm not here, but for what I went through, but I don't think people have to go through what I went through to get here. That was a it's little bit like really amazing how quickly you shifted your thinking and at such a young age too. So do you think some of that came from your mom? I think, I think what my the, the greatest gift my mom gave me was this, uh, uh, like, um, bottomless belief that I had what it takes to pull things off. Now, if you're looking through the lens of, of a dysfunctional memoir, about a dysfunctional parent-child relationship, you would say that's part of the, you know, the, the the heroification of a child, the parentification of a child, right? Like it's your job to save everybody. So maybe a little bit of that, or maybe she saw something in me that legitimately made her believe you're gonna figure everything out. I really don't know the answer to that question. So, mm -hmm. but the truth of the matter is my mom believing that everything I'm gonna do is always gonna work out and believe that I have a destiny uh, in front of me that could go as high as the White House, right? Like no matter where I ever end up, like that was her, her view of me, this special little boy that did, that did for whatever, whatever reason, it did enable me to feel like I could pull it all off. So out of all the people in the world, like who met my decision to drop out of high school. And imagine sitting on the steps of Cardoza High School. You know that feeling when you hear the blood in your ear? I'm sitting here smoking a cigarette being like, and all I hear is a shh, you know, like there's nobody out anymore. Now I'm allowed to be out here at one. It's different to cut school and be out at McDonald's at one in the afternoon. Very different to be allowed to. You are then officially a loser, right? The one person who I can't even recall having a reaction was my mother. Just new, makes sense, logical, you'll pull it off. And so that is that is a gift I talk about in the book. Um, she gave me that. So she really was more of a mentor in a way, in her own way, just by not telling you what to do. She allowed you to find your way. She was. She was like the positive part was a mentor. The negative part is no kid should be or wants to be a parent. 
And so I was I was a parent at a very young age. And and so therefore you lose that part of your development where you're me centered. And that's a really important part for any child's development. You have to protect their ability to be selfish because mm -hmm. that is where the self forms. And so so the downside, but we were in exigent circumstances. Like she was truly desperate. And I didn't I don't really talk about publicly the why, but it took me some years later, and this will be in a book I write about. I, I recreated her history now that I had the resources. I literally unearthed everything that she didn't even know about herself. And I mm -hmm. found the legacy of abuse was so profound that her ability to assume the parent role was forever distorted. And so once I had that understanding, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Because when I became a parent, I was like, I would never want my children taking care of me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there is no chance in hell. And then, of course, you probably go too far the other way and insulating it from your kids and they could feel that it's, it's inauthentic. But the long story short is, uh, I understood how the cycle of abuse had created that dynamic. So underneath that layer of parentifying and being a parent that no kid wants, being able, giving me the unwavering support and belief in who I could be and should be. My mother would not eat for an ounce be surprised by two NFL teams, the life I've created, like nothing about this life. And, and she died when I, she died the day I became press secretary, which is, you know, we can get into that, but she died that morning. So I was, I was right to believe that it was a crisis. Mm -hmm. that we were on the clock. I just arrived a day early, a day late rather, because she died that morning. If she, if it had just been a month later, we would have been able to get the healthcare. You know, we would have been able to intervene. I would have been able to set her up in an apartment and have my own apartment. I was still living with her at 26, you know, grow, a grown man. Um, so it was that faith. And so what I take away for any parent out there listening to this, and why I wrote the book partly is like, if you're the kind of parent that every when your when your kid tells you, Hey, mom, I want to be the next Taylor Swift. And you have an anxiety attack and you try to steer them to being a CPA. You don't need to do that. Like they have wired into the factory settings, the ability to save themselves and survive. They know what soul crushing life they're going to settle for when they can't be Taylor Swift, but don't short, short circuit the attempt to be Taylor Swift because they're going to land short of that, but it's going to be better than the soul crushing job that you're trying to impose upon them. And that defies conventional wisdom. So my entire book, again, peeling back the layers, a big part of it is to tell folks, stop obsessing about plan B and stop inculcating in your children the belief they should obsess about plan B. Mm. So that was a long, we're going on like a very oh long God. journey, but I, <laughs> I can really relate to this because I I also had to help my mother when and she was very ill before she died. I'm sorry. And I was in my early 20s. So it was a really formative period of time. And it's it's very difficult to be that parent to your to your mother. And you don't really realize how hard it is, but you go on. You just do what you need to do. Right. And I've tried to strike a balance with the book and it's for another book to really get into more details. Like I don't want to be authentic, inauthentic because right. here's why. If I didn't asterisk my journey right now, like you and I just did, we were honest about the feelings it creates, how hard that is. Then some kids sitting out there right now who's taking care of it, I'm making them feel even worse when they resent the role. Right. They're sitting here like, oh, maybe I'm not a good person because I hate this job. And I wish I had two parents who were totally self-sufficient, which is how they really feel, which is how everybody feels. And so I'm trying to like honor my mother and talk about that gift that she gave while saying, of course, I didn't want the role. Nobody wants the role. You know, you want to you want to evolve yourself. And so I'm glad we just I'm giving you the reasoning why I share about that while honoring and so that somebody hearing this right now feels seen. How are you raising your kids now to have that same belief that you had and 
are they showing the same signs of the way you think? Did you bring that into the training with them as kids? Well, number one, the annoying part about any parent, right, is you 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 overcorrect. So by overcorrecting what you don't want to do to your kids, you create a new problem. So I'm creating as new problems that I'm in trying to not instill <laughs> that problem, right? Like, you know, authenticity, authenticity, you have to share your emotions because then kids feel even more vulnerable when they can't figure out when you're unhappy, you know? It's like, you can't win. But I think in terms of um, values, uh, I violently disagree with people who try to prosthetically install hardship onto their kids because I walked five miles in my day and, you know, you have to too. So I don't believe in that. I believe the way to ensure that your kids have good morals is that you don't develop an identity or self-worth based on things. Like I could care less about things, about credentials, about money as a means to make me feel good and, and alleviate pain and then to ameliorate suffering, right? But so I believe that no one in the family is taking on the identity around that. Um, that work and education are the path to freedom. So everyone works, you know, and everyone has great values. And so I, I am proud of that, but, but honestly, they were all born very intrinsically motivated. I don't think I could take a ton of credit. I think I could take a ton of credit around not distorting their trajectory, but I think their trajectory is their own. And I marvel at that. Like they were all born very intrinsically motivated with good values. Hmm. Well, you're a good example. And one of the yep. things that's really fun and watching and reading your book too is I think about how many people we have probably 86% of the, our listeners are female. So they're thinking about their journey, running a business and also raising kids and raising kids is, you know, is for sure the most important job they have. But in doing so, they also need to set an example for how they can be successful in life. And it's a hard balance and you watched it with your mom. So what is some of the advice you would give to some of the female listeners? Oh, such a good, that's a good question. Who are juggling, especially as moms and single moms. Well, I think number one thing that a kid wants to feel is that the parents have it covered. So whatever the situation is, that preserving the sense that to your child, this isn't your job. It's not your job to worry. Now, that's different about you. They can be compassionate and empathetic. You want to cultivate that, but you don't want to cultivate custody. They should not take custody of your emotions. They should not take custody of the problems. So that's my number one parental advice that I feel really strongly about. Second of all, modeling for your child that a woman can run her own business, you know, and, and this is all obvious stuff, right? But it's crazy that we still have to have this question in 2023. But like modeling all those things is such a tremendous gift. Whether you have a daughter who then aspires higher or a young man who learns to respect and admire work and entrepreneurial spirit manifesting in his mom is amazing. So for anyone out there who is juggling, know that the gift of self-sufficiency that you are modeling for your child is more important than the time you don't spend with them. As long as you're ensuring that mom's got it covered. You know what I mean? And yeah. second of all, the values you're instilling if you have a little girl who says, I want to be respected for my work and my creativity or for a little man who would be like, this is the kind of woman I want to aspire to. Like my wife is the greatest force multiplier in the world, Sarah. She is the most talented human being I've ever 
associated with and like it's like humbling i actually get such a kick out of it in fact it forces me to be even more incompetent in other areas because i know that she'll do it but she's a licensed contractor an architect she has wow. done all these amazing yeah she's amazing but she's also my partner in business and mm-hmm. in any context that i'm in sarah's by my side so when i teach at harvard business school sarah's in the room she does the logistics and when i do a tv show sarah's suddenly the production assistant so my only point to all that is think about her her, her kids are now look at that model and presumably they'll seek to emulate it. They'll never tell you, right? But like, that means that hopefully, you know, our little girl will look for somebody who will respect, you know, the partnership and little boy will look for somebody who is just so incredibly competent across all the different ways. So I think the long, it's a long way of saying any um, women entrepreneurs are out there who are juggling and maybe feel guilty understanding that the deposits you're making in the future self of that child will far outweigh any bit of longing that they had for more of your time is, is, is my take on it. Well, I have a question that's maybe a little bit off this track, but I think one thing that I've noticed in the single moms is that they tend to have smaller dreams. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is dreaming bigger. And how do you help someone who doesn't have that in them or hasn't ever had that experience of really going for big dreams? How do you help them? Yeah, that's great. I mean, it begins, it's a psychological issue at first. It's feeling like the die is cast, maybe. Look, I made these decisions and marriage fell apart. Now I have to take care of the, you know, I'm limited. And I think that's the number one thing. There's a phrase the Italians always say, which I love, the fish rots from the head, right? If your head's not right, then you can't possibly manifest something bigger for yourself. So it begins by saying, actually, the uh, there's a great phrase, if you want something done to give it to somebody who's busy, right? Which I found always true in business, right? That because you're a single mom, you now to you have to refine your executive functioning skills because you have no margin for error, which makes you highly, highly competent at context toggling, right? Here's my context today, I gotta show up, I gotta give this presentation. And I'm like, oh shit, I gotta find out, you know, I gotta take my kid to the uh, urgent care at the end of the day because I got an ear infection that damn won't heal. You know what I mean? Like, but I got nobody to take them. All right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then I'll work on the PowerPoint at 9 p.m. So I, in my experience, I have found uh, people who will carry more and rise to the occasion become incredibly more efficient and effective at all the executive functioning skills. And so my point is you got to reframe the journey that the compression and the pressure is an asset because it's going to make you more focused. And number two, because you don't have margin for error, you cull the herd. We have so much excess in our lives. That's gratuitous. So, you know, we, we, we don't handle social conflict well. Like, I don't want to not go to that party because I have to and be judged. When your back is against the wall and you got to take care of your kids, you're trying to build your company, like you don't care about niceties anymore. And so it's a long way of saying, in my experience, people, especially single moms as an example, who are building businesses, are tremendously effective because they know how to manage their time better than somebody who has the luxury, you know, of not caring. But it all begins with reframing and not feeling like the die is cast and that you can only, you know, dream so much. I think that's a creative pursuit as well. And I think sometimes it's just so hard to carve out that little bit of extra time to think about what do I want? Because I think the moms are thinking about what do I need to do for my kids? So they end up being in this service level of thinking and they're in that pleasing level where they're wanting to take care of everyone else. And how can you make that little switch? What is there one thing that you could say that would help them really find that switch for themselves? 
Yeah. And I think a lot of it begins from when you're in a position where the stakes are so high, like you're so desperate to make, give your kids a good life. Mm -hmm. You feel very dependent upon any, any uh, tethering. So if you're tethered to a company, you feel very dependent upon that, you know, umbilical cord, right. That if it's severed, everything's at stake, you can't feed your children. And so that's, that's very hard. So you have to work on, on really believing that you're going to be okay no matter what happens, that you are the platform. The job is not the platform. And then to those who have a dream and feel like I can't go for it because of my, 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 my kids, mm -hmm. right? You're not safe at a job. In fact, the, 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 the most dangerous place to stand is standing still. The most dangerous spot to occupy in, uh, in your professional life is as an employee because you are dependent upon that wire transfer every two weeks and the person who pushes the button. And that person for a variety of reasons can wake up any day and say the economy changed or I don't like you anymore or says somebody better, any number of reasons. And I think people don't walk around like really processing that. They always presume that the independent path, the small business is the dangerous path. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the employee part is the safe path. And I think it's actually completely reversed. So the reason why I bring that up, if you're feeling that way and you're building your own company and you're like, Oh God, this is so hard. It's I'm working 70 hours a week. I'm like, what am I doing it for? And like the, you know, the supply chain sucks. I can't, you know, get enough traction. I should have just stayed in that other job. Just remember that's a fantasy and something you've constructed in your own mind. It's not safe. You're actually safe, safe for betting on yourself. So the better thing to do is audit like, okay, where am I weak? How do I interrupt the patterns that govern me? This is actually very important for artists. And I talk a little bit in the book about artists mm -hmm. under the, under the uh, section where I talk about the archetypes, archetypes of toxic leadership. One of the archetypes is the withholder. A withholder is the manager that knows that you are seeking approval uh, because maybe you're a pleaser or maybe you're just a human being and you want to know you did a, a job well done. And that insecure leader denies you that approval because they know it destabilizes you and they move the goalpost on you. And wow. so they're, and, and now you in your mind may sense like, I feel like you're denying me recognition on purpose. I can't put my finger on it. And yet behind my back, you tell everyone else I'm great, but you never tell me directly. And that makes sense because I'm property, right? So you're bragging about how you have good property and you're, re you're redistributing credit to others around me that didn't do the job because it's, again, it's all destabilizing. Why does that make, is, why is that important to artists? Because artists do tend to be more pleasers in my experience. They don't like the friction of the commerce part, right? Because you want to focus on your art and you wish it wasn't even necessary. You wish you didn't have to charge. And so I'm giving you this pep talk. If this resonates with anyone out there, I'm if you sure want to do better... If you want to do better, you got to confront that impulse somewhere along the way. You were taught or instilled in yourself this idea that you can't advocate for you, that you're not worthy or it's untoward or it's you know unbecoming to fight for yourself. And so one of the greatest pivots you can make as an artist is don't be afraid to be like, OK, before I do any work, I'm so excited about this project. It's really great. Let's agree now so that we can focus on the fun stuff. And I find that's so hard for people to do. They're like, I'll just show that I'm doing a really good work and then we'll talk about terms, right? And, oh. and so the story of my book that I love talking about is this woman who DM'd me on Instagram and she does these incredible car wraps. And she was saying like, it's such a tender message, never met her. I, I keep finding myself in the same situation where I'll do work for somebody and they'll go ahead and in the end when I'll demand payment, they won't pay me or they'll cut me in half. 
they'll treat me like crap, even though my work is great, right? And I was like, well, are they happy with it? Well, they were happy until I went and got payment. And what I found was the missing piece of this story was, was not comfortable asserting exact terms at the beginning and mm -hmm. sort of putting everything down. And so anyway, you asked like, what's one piece of advice? It would be rather than fantasize about going back to that job, focus on what it is about you that is pattern driven, that if you change the pattern, you could go ahead and change the entire trajectory of your business or your career. Wow, that's powerful. I love that. Thank you. I love this topic. I love the psychological stuff. Much less interested in the, you know, this job or that job. It's this is where the, this is where the value creation is, right? Anything psychological. Well, I, and I think too that um, the way you're approaching this is the way you've approached it in the book too, and then the stories that you shared. It just helps so much to have a path or somebody showing you there is a different path. You can be stronger. You can be assertive. You can ask for what you're worth right up front. I love the way you phrased that. That was so beautiful. And I hope that people replay this and write that down and go practice that because that can make the difference in people in our industry being paid what they're really worth. It truly, I mean, that is, that's gold. <laughs> it makes all, and it makes all the difference. And by the way, this is self-talk. Yeah. It took me a while to break this pattern. I'm like, where did this pattern come from? Like, why do I find it so uncomfortable to assert what I deserve? And then I realized, oh, it was the interruption of that me period where, because I was a caretaker and you always had to sublimate your needs. I never really cultivated the ability to be like, what do I want? You know, because by the time you're 26, you've now lost that entire chapter, right? And you're operating in a crisis all the time, doing whatever it takes to survive. And so I bet you a lot of people who, because from trauma comes art, a lot of people, you know, have a tortured existence and never cultivated the ability to assert themselves. And, and big, big picture, for those who hear the title, Burn the Boats, it's not for me. It's a little bit of an inside joke. This phrase goes back to the beginning of recorded history. It's very bombastic. Burn the boats. You know, it's militaristic. It's always used by male generals. The inside joke in my mind was like, I'm going to take this phrase that's imbued with all this authority that goes back to the beginning of recorded history. And I'm going to redefine what a boat is. In my mind, a boat is a metaphor for anything that beckons us to retreat in our mind. And the things that beckon us to retreat are very psychological. They're anxiety, imposter syndrome, they're shame. There are all these things that, that undermine our commitment. And what we really want to do is to commit. And so to give you the confidence to do that, you do have to learn how to process risk. And the whole big part of the book is about understanding when you process your plan B makes all the difference in the world. When you're pursuing your ultimate ambition, if you haven't litigated risk before you do that, it makes you look over your shoulder constantly. But if you before you do it, you do a simple four-step process, it changes everything. Number one, what's the worst that's gonna happen if my plan A doesn't work out? Just embrace your inner catastrophizer is what I call it, right? Because mine is very creative, likes to imagine terrible things. I'm back in landlord-tenant court, you know, getting evicted, eating government cheese. What's the worst that could happen? Number two, what would I do if the worst thing were to happen? Why that question is so important is we have hardwired into our factory settings deep in the amygdala, the ability to feed ourselves and survive. We already know our plan B. We don't need to devote any energy to it. And as soon as I say this question to anyone, within a second, oh, I'd go back. For me, it's hanging on my wall. It's that law degree that I hope to never have to use. Number three, what's the probability that the worst thing's gonna happen? The reason why that's so important is we have, we're very bad at actually forecasting the bad things that do happen. And we miss the things that ultimately happen. 
we never anticipate them. And and by putting a probability, you'd be like, all right, so there's like a 1% chance that I'm going to be banished. No one will ever talk to me again. I'm going to go broke. And then four, simple four-step process, four, what would I be willing to sacrifice? What would I be willing to endure? What pain would I subject myself to, to achieve my plan A? So for me to teach at Harvard Business School, to go ahead and finally do that thing I always dreamed of, I never got to compete at the highest level of academia, to teach at Harvard Business School, I would come with an inch of my life. Like I would sacrifice anything and endure any kind of pain. Everything I do, that is my burn the boats moment, I'm willing to bleed for right up to the edge compromise health, compromise sanity, compromise everything to achieve it. And so the reason why that's so important, number four, always eclipses number one. If you simply do that, then you can go forward with like a horse, like a horse with blinders on and you never look back. But this isn't just Matt Hagen saying it. There was a study out of Wharton in 2014 that talked about it. They tried to measure the impact of plan B. And what they found was amazing. Merely contemplating plan B, not even doing anything about it, um, does two things. One, it materially diminishes the likelihood you're ever going to succeed at plan A. And two, it makes you much less intrinsically motivated. You just don't care as much anymore. So sequence matters. They didn't, they don't use this four-step process, but this is my my addendum to the to the study is that you need a process for managing risk. So I would say to anybody listening to this who's got your own design business, your own consultant, whatever it is, and if you find yourself looking over your shoulder, I bet that you didn't process the worst that could happen if it didn't work out. You didn't ask yourself what you would do about it. You didn't go through that process. And you were, and here's why it matters. Doing really, really hard, audacious things requires 110% of your focus, not 100. The energy leakage devoted to plan B is enough to change the trajectory of your entire life. So it's so hard. My book is my accountability partner. My tattoo on my arm is my accountability partner. I need to be reminded every day, like, you committed. Like, it's done, asked and answered. But you can't do that if you haven't processed the worst case you know, scenario. Wow. Well, that was a perfect ending for the podcast. Thank you. I'm sorry so I went in so long. I've been dying to talk to you. I've been dying to talk to your audience. Again, any, when everyone out there reads the book, you will see it begins with a female entrepreneur. It ends with a female entrepreneur. It's like I really care so much in particular uh, because I am surrounded by incredible female CEOs. And they just do a remarkable job. And here's the reason why. And I guess this is a degree of stereotyping, but I found it to be, be true. I just find that women leaders, leaders often over-index for self-awareness. And self-awareness is the greatest arbitrage entirely within our control. If you are self-awareness, you are self-aware, you are self-correcting. And when things aren't going well, you're willing to look within. And I just find that a lot of the credible CEOs that I have, the, the, the common denominator is this ability to be like, let's take a step back, you know, what's not working out. And so my book celebrates a lot of those stories. So to reach your audience in particular is amazing. And a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from, especially female entrepreneurs has been propelling me to keep fighting for the book. Well, I think it's going to be a life-changing read for anybody that's willing to do it. And are you the one that's doing the audible version of this as well? I did. I did the audible. Uh, never had done that before. I, Adam Grant, I asked Adam Grant, should I do the audible? And you know what he told me? The number one regret he had when writing a book is he didn't, he didn't record the first one and he's done everyone oh. since. So yeah, oh my, my regret on the audible, I wish I had like stopped and annotated like, okay, let me tell you what happened here. <laughs> like if I, my next book, I'm going to do whatever I want and make my audible like also like a story from the 1930s, you know, where I bring in different casts and quotes and stuff like that. Love it. Can't wait for it. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for your time today. It was so amazing to hear your story and to hear the insights. 
I think just even one or two of those great nuggets that you shared is going to change people's lives. So thank well, you. Thank for that. you. Well, thank you. And anybody who reads it, if you would DM me and let me know what you think, I read every DM about the book. I read every comment. Uh, if you'd write a review, uh, those reviews mean everything on Amazon. But more importantly, just if it if it changes affects you, DM me because it is grueling to to push a book and. People are like, why are you working so hard on it? It's because every day I wake up to a story from somebody around the world, more women than men by far, saying the book um, was not the genesis, it was the catalyst to cross the threshold of commitment. They have been harboring a dream that they've been neglecting and the book gave permission, which is, which for me is the single most important thing I've ever done in my life. Nothing compares, no credential, nothing on the wall compares to a DM from somebody saying, I read your book and it made me commit. Like, so that's the mission I'm on. I mean, I almost feel greedy because I want it to happen again and again and again because it makes my life feel so meaningful. So point is, if it affects you, you know, DM me, let me know. Like you did. Thank you. Well, thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on today. And thank you for caring so much. All right. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you to Matt Higgins for starting off this season of the Creative Genius Podcast with a highly thought-provoking conversation. With so many nuggets of wisdom presented in this episode, hopefully you take at least one thing away to think further on. Tune in next week for the next episode of this season of the podcast. And be sure to follow Pearl Collective on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for the latest updates about this podcast and more.